It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, July 26th, 2021. Welcome to a brand new broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. If you don't know me very well, that means you might be new to the show, in which case, welcome. We're glad to have you here and everyone else, of course, every weekday, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 Eastern Time. Anyways, listen live across our affiliates streaming fox nation many options there and if you can't listen live the podcast is always a great choice guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your free podcast it is free on demand at the conclusion of the live show but if you want to keep up as we air that's the best way to do it listening live which we always recommend I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor, and I'm finally home. Been traveling for two straight weeks, broadcasting this show from New York and Indianapolis. I was just in Idaho for the first time. We'll talk about that at the end of the show in the home stretch, but it is good to be home even just for a few days. Here's what we have on tap for you, Dr. Nicole Sapphire from the Fox Medical team. She's going to join us later this hour. There's a lot to get to on COVID, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation, as I always do with Dr. Sapphire. Josh Krasauer from National Journal will also be here talking politics. How are things looking in the governor's race, for example, in Virginia? How racial issues are playing into some swing districts, some new data and interesting polling on that. Concerns from Democrats. They are starting to sweat. And on issues of race and racial essentialism, racial indoctrination, Camille Foster will be here in our final hour, the happy hour. First time for him on the show, and I'm looking forward to that discussion because he's a sharp guy, very thoughtful. Before we get to some of the COVID stuff to begin, let's bring you a Fox News alert. And relatedly, let's bring you the stats as we always do. The case count of known official coronavirus cases in the United States all time, 34.4 million. Levels of natural immunity almost certainly much higher than that because we haven't had great testing, especially in those early days. So between vaccination and natural immunity, the numbers are much higher. The death toll from COVID in the United States, because it's millions worldwide, here in America, 610,463 Americans have died from COVID. And as we've mentioned, right now, the overwhelming majority of those who are hospitalized with COVID or dying from COVID are unvaccinated Americans. The Dow is up 63 points right now to 35,125. So I wrote about this earlier today at townhall.com. You all remember from the Trump administration, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She was the White House press secretary for a while. 
She then joined Fox News as a contributor for a bit. She then left Fox because she's running for office. She's running for governor down in Arkansas, of course, where her father served as governor uh, for years. And I would say she is the likely frontrunner down there in Arkansas for the 2022 election. She has put out an op-ed in a local newspaper down in Arkansas talking about the vaccine. And I think that she's framing it really well. Now, if you're not a Trump fan, or even if you know you hate Donald Trump, you might not love the way that she's talking about this and making her argument, but to me, that's irrelevant. Arkansas is one of the states with a lower vaccination rate, so it's getting hit harder right now with this Delta-slash-Indian variant wave. So she's making, I think, a very reasonable, politically savvy case particularly to conservatives and Trump supporters in her state. And what I like about the way that she made this argument is it's not a harangue. She's not scolding people. She's not demanding stuff. She offers good, useful context. And she does something that it sort of surprised me that more Trump supporters haven't done more vociferously and uh, consistently. You'll see it. It's not like this is a novel argument. They have made this case, but... If I were them, I'd be doing it over and over and over again. Because as a matter of fact, when I was speaking to the Young Republicans National Convention in, uh, in Indianapolis last week, that was, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday that I spoke. It's all blurred together. But during the Q&A, Trump came up and coronavirus and uh, the 2020 election and a bunch of related topics. And one of the things that I said, and I truly believe this is right, For all of the faults of the Trump administration, I think anyone who's been in charge, we've seen this across the world, no one has handled this perfectly. You're getting a lot of stuff thrown at you if you're in a position of power and you're trying to balance things, people's liberties, economic interests, public health, right? It's complicated. And I think the people who have done so thoughtfully and actually followed the science as opposed to blindly pretending to follow the science, I think that those people should be rewarded. That's one of the reasons that I've grown more and more of a fan of Ron DeSantis, for example, the governor of Florida. But Trump, there's plenty of things to criticize from the administration's COVID response. And in particular, his messaging, the way he talked about it, what he signaled to Americans. To say that he handled it imperfectly, I think, is an understatement. However, they got some things right. They were unfairly criticized in a number of ways. And as I said at the convention... In response to a question, I think the single most important decision that could have been made by Trump or any president under those circumstances was the Operation Warp Speed vaccine full court press decision. And he got that one right. And thank God he did. Because there were people criticizing it, doubting it at the time, and there's receipts, there's Tweets floating around from blue checkmark people who are saying, oh, this is a weird obsession that they have with these vaccines. It's not realistic. It's going to take years. Why are they doing this? Then, of course, you had some skepticism from Joe Biden, especially from Kamala Harris, about whether they'd be willing to take a vaccine developed under Trump. Harris was especially bad. I do wonder, in an alternate universe, if Trump got reelected, would more of the vaccine hesitancy be On the left right now, I think almost certainly the answer is yes. But what Huckabee Sanders does in her piece, talking about the vaccines, is she goes out of her way over and over again to talk about 
the vaccines being developed under Trump and touting that achievement. I think it's an obvious thing to do. So here's what she writes. A few months ago, I decided to take advantage of President Trump's Operation Warp Speed and get vaccinated. Dr. Fauci and the Because the Science Says So crowd of arrogant, condescending politicians and bureaucrats were wrong about more than just their mandates and shutdowns that have inflicted incalculable harm on our people and our economy. They also misjudged the Trump vaccine plan, which rolled out just as safely, quickly, and effectively as the Trump administration promised. When the Trump administration initiated Operation Warp Speed in May 2020, the president stated that a vaccine would become available by December of that year at the very latest. From the moment he made his announcement, the, quote, expert class tried to undermine those statements with baseless fear-mongering. So this is what Sarah Huckabee Sanders is reminding people of. She goes on later in the piece. Based on the advice of my doctor, I determined that the benefits of getting vaccinated outweighed any potential risks. I was also reassured after President Trump and his family were vaccinated. If getting vaccinated was safe enough for them, I felt it was safe enough for me. She says that she's not demanding that anyone do anything. She's not insisting that people listen to her advice. But she does say, in Arkansas in particular, where hospitalizations are exponentially rising, she says, quote, information is emerging that I hope people will consider. Recent data demonstrates that those Arkansas who are not uh, Arkansans rather who are not vaccinated are at significantly greater risk for serious illness from COVID. In fact, 98% of COVID patients currently hospitalized in our state and 99% of recent COVID deaths were people who were not vaccinated. It's clear, writes Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's clear that the Trump vaccine works and is saving lives. I will also note that there is a conservative radio host named Phil Valentine. I actually met him years ago when I was an intern at Fox News for Hannity and Combs. Based in Tennessee, he's on a bunch of stations. He had expressed an unwillingness to get vaccinated for various reasons. He has now been hospitalized for days with COVID. And his family is begging for prayers and for people to get vaccinated. In an update this weekend, his wife said, quote, They say he is still not getting well. Please pray for me. I'm at a breaking point. His brother posted on Facebook. Having seen this up close and personal, I'd encourage all of you to put politics and other concerns aside and get it, meaning the vaccine. And he said he was one of the people who was skeptical and didn't do it. Seeing what's happened to his brother has changed his mind. So we are very much pulling for a speedy recovery for Phil. Also, this is an example that this family's experiencing. Now, the good news, and there's actually a fair amount of it, is that the so-called decoupling between cases, hospitalizations, and deaths is continuing in the United States, in Israel, in the UK, where we have these huge new numbers of cases in highly vaccinated places, and the hospitalizations and deaths, though they are going up, are not spiking up because there is a brick wall of immunity created by the vaccines, but also by natural immunity, people who've had COVID before and therefore have antibodies. So there is at least some hope here 
that we might be on the downswing of this third big COVID wave. And if we have a whole bunch of immunity at that point, future COVID waves, should they happen here, would probably be comparatively very small. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who ran the FDA under Trump, he made this point looking at the UK and seeing how their cases have shot up because of the Delta variant, but their deaths have not. He said, if you look at what they're doing in the UK, they're a few weeks ahead of us in this curve, in this trajectory. Here was his analysis in Cut 5 on NBC. If you look at the UK right now, and we're probably about three weeks, maybe four weeks behind the UK, perhaps a little less than that. If you look at the UK, they do in the last seven days appear to be turning a corner. You're starting to see a downward trajectory on the cases. Now, it's unclear whether that's going to be sustained. They just lifted a lot of the mitigation that they had in place. But if the UK is any guide, we are perhaps further into this epidemic and hopefully going to turn a corner in the next two or maybe three weeks. So if they're a leading indicator, and we have sort of similar levels of vaccination, if they're coming down and flattening out, and if you look, every area of England, every region of England, the cases are down with the Delta variant. So if that's the leading indicator of where we're headed in a number of weeks, that would be fantastic. And that's not just hoping, right? That's not just wish casting. There's actually some logic and data behind that. By the way, I'm going to check myself. That was a clip from CBS Face the Nation. I said NBC. just want to be accurate. So I hope he is right about that. But because of Delta, people are running around. This was a, a heavy theme on this show the last few weeks. People are freaking out because of Delta and saying, oh, gosh, we need to start looking again at new restrictions and mandates. And you're seeing mask mandates coming back for vaccinated people and new questions and debates about masks for children, which is something that I want to ask Dr. Sapphire about coming up later in the hour. And on my flights back home yesterday, of course, on airplanes, I'm not a runaway Texas Democratic lawmaker, so I had to wear a mask on these airplanes. I'm a fully vaccinated person. And I saw this piece from a writer called Jim Treacher. He's a conservative. And... Here's his headline. I wore my mask and I got my shots and now you will leave me alone. Enough. And this is what he writes in his piece. If I'm vaccinated, I'm not going to get sick. That's the whole point of getting vaccinated. And by the way, you can get a breakthrough case, but it'll be very mild or asymptomatic or you're just protected. Right? That is the whole point of getting vaccinated. He writes, if someone else is unvaccinated and gets sick, how is that my problem? They should have gotten vaccinated. Why should I have to participate in an honor system or be subject to some sort of mask mandate just because somebody else took a risk and is now facing the consequences? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm vaccinated. If you want my opinion, you should get vaccinated. And if you don't want my opinion, you should get vaccinated, Jim Treacher writes. That's it. That's all I or anyone else can do. He concludes, I was a good boy. I did what I was told for a year and a half. I locked down. I socially distanced. I wore my mask and I got my shots. I didn't get sick. I didn't make anyone else sick. And now you will leave me alone. I have had it with this crap. Now, there are some counterpoints to be made, but what he just expressed, I think, is what a lot of people are feeling. To a large extent, I'm one of them. I think it's really tough and unfair 
to tell a bunch of people to do all sorts of things and not to do a bunch of other things for a year and a half of their lives and then say the ticket out of this is getting vaccinated. Then they get vaccinated and say, well, never mind, there's a variant and you've got these unvaccinated people. We might need you to do some of these other things now. Put the mask back on. It's sending all sorts of wrong messages. It's doing all sorts of backwards incentive structures. And I think it's even crazier when it comes to children. But is that the direction that we're headed anyway? There's a lot to get to on that front. We will revisit it as soon as we come back from this break, and then we will pick the brain of Dr. Nicole Sapphire later this hour. We are just getting going. A new week on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. you think masks should be brought back for vaccinated Americans? This is under active consideration. If you're asking about part of, am I part of the discussion? Yes, I am part of the discussion. The CDC agrees with that ability and discretion capability to say, you know, you're in a situation where we're having a lot of dynamics of infection. So even if you are vaccinated, you should wear a mask. Back on the Guy Benson show, that was, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci asked on CNN. And it just seems like they are edging closer and closer to once again recommending mask wearing for vaccinated people. Which to me, look, I get it. There are a few different arguments that kind of make sense, but I think it gets so muddled. And the benefits, the potential benefits are outweighed by a lot of harm. I think that would do. But he's confirming there, Dr. Fauci is, oh yes, it's under active discussion. I'm part of those discussions. There's reasons why this might make sense. This is why now we're seeing these mask mandates for everyone indoors, vaccinated included, popping up in jurisdictions across the country. It's why we're starting to see it for kids, not just in the school year upcoming, School districts are saying, yep, we're going to have mask requirements for children. Fauci said three and up, which I think is just crazy. Is there science behind it? Does it make any sense whatsoever? We've tried to dig into the numbers. We've gotten people... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share to give their opinion, medical opinions. We'll get another medical opinion upcoming from Dr. Nicole Sapphire. She is going to join us right after this break. I have a lot to get to with her, plus some other stuff from Fauci that I think is somewhat alarming. It's straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. It's Monday here on the program. Appreciate you tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. If you miss any of the program, let's get to Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and also best-selling author. Her latest book is Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19 on sale now. Hey, doctor, great to have you back. Hey, Guy. Happy Monday. (laughs) Happy Monday. Well, it kind of feels like Groundhog Day, actually, to some extent with COVID, because a lot of us were feeling much more optimistic. The message was, go get vaccinated. This is your ticket back to normalcy. And now we just played in the previous segment over the weekend, Dr. Fauci confirming that there are active considerations underway to reimposing mask recommendations, mask mandates, even for vaccinated people. And look, I've had this conversation with people who will say, well, even if you are vaccinated, you could have a breakthrough case. And even though it won't hurt you too badly, it might, you know, transmit the virus to someone who isn't vaccinated. So we kind of have to be careful about that. And I'm open, at least in theory, to talking about some of this stuff. But I just feel like you're pulling the rug out from a lot of people where you tell them week after week, month after month, the vaccines are safe. They work. You can get back to normal and then seizing on, you know, this Delta variant surge. People see the backtracking and doubts creep into their minds about all of it. And I just I personally view it as counterproductive, at least when it comes to PR. I wonder what you think of that. And then also just the medical side of it as well. So, Guy, let's think of or the real Groundhog Day. Let's talk July 2020, where actually we were seeing about, you know, a lot of places like the Northeast were finally starting to emerge from lockdowns, and we had low numbers. Throughout the country, we had about 70,000 new cases. We are actually at about 70,000 new cases right now. But here's the thing. When you actually want, you know, the devil's in the details. Back in July 2020, we were having about 1,200 Americans die every single day from COVID-19. Fast forward to now, we are have, hovering at about 200 to 250. While we don't want anybody to be dying from COVID-19, that number is significantly better than it was last summer. And the reason being is because we are having less severe disease, we have better treatments, and over 90% of the most vulnerable, those 65 and older, have been vaccinated. And that's why we're not seeing the same rise in hospitalizations and vaccines. We have a big over-testing problem, Guy. I can tell you, Dr. Fauci, ET all, the CDC, they need to actually sit and do a think take about where, what are, what's our goal right now. We are not going to get to zero cases of COVID-19. We need to be looking at, first of all, how we're testing people, because we are continuing to just test asymptomatic people, which may be having clinically insignificant cases. They Not only is it not going to make them sick, but they're not going to transmit it to anybody else. So what do these new cases mean other than absolutely nothing? So if we're only basing these Wait, future so explain policies that. on... If you can just explain that a little further, because you're saying, okay, and this is part of yeah, my so- frustration as well, because... It seems like there's been a big 
And I get it. It's understandable. A big fixation on some of the breakthrough cases. Oh, this person has a breakthrough case. This person's vaccinated, and yet they got a mild case of COVID anyway. And I don't think that that's a helpful discussion to have from a media standpoint because it is, again, sending a very misleading message to a lot of people. And if you're counting as a positive COVID case, someone who's you know, has maybe a slight sniffle or nothing at all, just feels completely normal, but through the course of whatever process they're going through for work or whatever, they test positive, even though they have no symptoms whatsoever, that counts as a case. And you're saying at this stage of the pandemic, that's not a useful metric. Is that right? Absolutely. So here's the thing. Let me break this down. If you've ever heard of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, it can be a flesh-eating bacteria. It can be very deadly if it gets in, you know, compromised in certain wounds. Uh, but here's the thing. You start swabbing people's nose, especially a lot of healthcare workers in the hospital, a lot of them actually have MRSA, but it's not causing any problems. It's just there. When it comes to SARS-CoV-2, the virus causing COVID-19, what's happening is you're actually having people being swabbed. Those PCR tests, what they do is if they detect any viral particle, it amplifies that by the millions. So you may have non-virus particles stuff in someone's nose who has been vaccinated. Yes, maybe they have been around someone with SARS-CoV-2. Maybe they've been exposed. But because they're vaccinated or because they're immune from prior infection, that, that virus is actually not infiltrating into their system. They're not actually infected by it. They just have the presence of the virus or virus particles in their nose. But that's being counted as a new case. That's not helpful moving forward. What we care about are clinically significant cases. And what that means are people who are presenting with symptoms requiring hospitalization and, of course, death. We have to stop reporting cases when they come as asymptomatic people who have been vaccinated or asymptomatic people who have antibodies from prior infection. Those numbers are not helpful. They give us a very uh, false representation of how we as a country are doing in our level of immunity. So moving forward, they need to hone in a bit more on who they're testing and certainly should not be testing these asymptomatic vaccinated people because, as you mentioned, this gives doubt as to how well the vaccines are working because they're reporting any positive case in someone who's been vaccinated as a breakthrough case. And that's absolutely not the case. Yeah, it's not true. And and it will sow doubts among sort of casual observers saying, oh, all these vaccinated people are getting the virus, the vaccines must not work that well, when in fact these breakthrough cases, if you want to even call them that, are, to use your term, insignificant, clinically speaking, which is the point. It's actually it's actually proof that the vaccines do work, but the way that this gets filtered through in the press to certain people, uh, the, the opposite is what people understand when they have local governments in their neck of the woods saying, sorry, even if you're vaccinated, you got to put a mask back on. People are going to hear that and say they don't really believe that the vaccines work. And that, to me, is is damaging. I think it's very frustrating. And then, Doctor, to pick up on this uh, Groundhog Day theme (laughs) that we've been uh, bandying about a little bit, here we are yet again, and you and I have done this how many times? This is like our umpteenth discussion (laughs) about children and masks. And it's like you've got a bunch of adults running around like chickens with their heads cut off, squawking about Delta variant and putting children in masks again. 
And we're seeing it at summer camps. We're seeing it now in large cities, Chicago, Atlanta, New Orleans, announcing that kids, you know, even all the way down into kindergarten and lower, even preschool, they're going to have to wear masks at all times in school. And look, part of me is like, whatever it takes to get them into these buildings and into classrooms to learn again, I'm in favor of because of the disaster from last year, which was, again, rooted not in science, but political special interests and the unions and, and all of that. But there's also just the, the medical side of this of is there any actual scientific reason to force elementary school kids, for example, to mask up in any circumstances, whether you're outside running around during recess or during summer camp or in classrooms? I mean, it's now Fauci says three and up. They should be wearing masks. I really have trouble with this one, doctor, because I'm not a doctor. You are. But I've just been looking at the data now for well over a year, and it makes no sense to me. We know that schools aren't super spreaders. We know that kids are at infinitesimally low risk from bad health outcomes from COVID. And yet, you know, here comes a more contagious strain of the disease with a ton more people now vaccinated or with natural immunity. And it's like people can't get out of the ruts in their own mind of what they're supposed to do in response. They're like, oh, gosh, it's coming for the kids. Let's put them in masks. And I just want to see the science behind that. And I wonder if that science exists because it's been elusive. I'll put it that way and get your reaction. Well, I can tell you guys, the CDC is doing a really good job at only formulating studies to try and prove that the measures that they have instilled actually work. But they're not actually trying to see if individual uh, individual things are really beneficial or not. So, for instance, children wearing masks in school. One of the largest studies that they did was last fall in North Carolina area. They said by children, be, children can be in school as long as they're wearing masks and there's improved ventilation. And you saw that there was near zero to zero transmission amongst children. In fact, the only people transmitting the virus were the teachers. That was before the vaccines. So uh, deductive reasoning would say to me, okay, well, now that the teachers are vaccinated, everyone's fine. We actually, the children don't need to be wearing masks, but they don't do that. They just continue to point to that study saying, well, see, the children had masks on, therefore there was no transmission. And that's just that. That's just uh, unfortunately, it's just really being fit for their narrative. Now, guy, again, we want to always look for risk and benefit. Yes, mask wearing has its has its benefit in certain situations. But here we are talking about children, because any adult at this point who wants to be vaccinated can be vaccinated, has been vaccinated. And when you've looked at schools, the biggest transmission risk are the adults. So now we talk about the younger kids. In a whole, you have um, under 18 years, you've had less than 400 children die from COVID-19, and probably over 10 million have actually been infected. I wish the U.S. would do what the U.K. did, and they would look at those, I think it was 385 cases, to see how many of these cases were actually COVID-related deaths. Because I can tell you, if our data is anything like the U.K.'s, the U.K. found that there were significantly fewer deaths related to COVID in children than they had even reported. So I bet if we Which is already super low. Which is already approaching zero risk for children. So we have to go forward. Risk benefit of mask wearing in children. And I can tell you, I do not think the benefit of wearing face masks in children outweighs the risk. You have to think about, yes, you have some dermatologic conditions, dental conditions. 
socio-development, emotional, facial recognition, all of these things are important for children. When you put a mask on them, if that's their only means of protection from a deadly illness, I understand. But COVID-19, by and large, is not deadly in children. And so when we're looking at at a whole, the the benefit of mask wearing in young children certainly does not outweigh the risk. Yeah, and I'll just say, because we talked about exactly this on recent programs as well, more kids over the course of the pandemic, more American kids have died from pneumonia than COVID. And we're not forcing children across the entire country to take any number of you know crazy preventative measures against pneumonia because those numbers are also extremely low. But they're nevertheless larger than the COVID deaths that we've had in this country. And that's assuming that the COVID juvenile deaths, very, very few of them, are even counted correctly. And that's your point. The U.K. really doubled down and really did a deep dive into those numbers and found that they were even uh, less prevalent from the near zero levels that they had already reported. And for that reason, doctor, and I think it sort of follows then, the U.K. government, which has been much more restrictive, and that's the other thing. I mean, almost uh, you could definitely argue to a fault. They have been much more restrictive than we've had here in the United States, this top-down national strategy in the U.K. Their death rate, by the way, has been higher than ours overall uh, from COVID-19. But even within that mentality that they've had over there in the United Kingdom, their government, through all of the data that they've looked like uh, and what they've looked at, they came out and they've said, we are not going to have our pupils, A, kept out of school. So they were right about that. They kept their kids in school. And in a lot of places here, we didn't. Huge, huge mistake. And B, they said, when our students are in school, they will not be wearing masks because it's not necessary based on the science. And yet, I mean, you have Dr. Fauci out there talking to anyone he possibly can on TV saying, yes, if if you're three years old, you have to wear a mask. And there's just such a disconnect there, doctor. And the danger of that disconnect is not just, oh, you know, rolling your eyes at Fauci and there's people who hate him, there's people who love him, there are people in between. If you see the United Kingdom having kids in school, not wearing masks, having a perfectly fine experience with that, and then American experts are saying vaccinated people need to wear masks and kids need to wear masks, people are going to throw up their hands and say, this is incomprehensible, it's incoherent, I don't trust any of this stuff anymore. So then the really important messages that need to get out, getting vaccinated or whatever, there's a heightened layer, there's, there's a deeper layer of skepticism, maybe well-earned skepticism. That's what I worry about. Well, Guy, I can tell you right now, I mean, on average, you have more children that die from an accidental drowning than COVID-19. In fact, about twice as many children have died from drowning the last year as COVID-19. So until Dr. Fauci says, you know, all school, all all beaches, all schools need to be closed because of the risk to children, I cannot wrap my head around why he would think it's okay for children to put on masks because of their risk to COVID-19. It doesn't make sense. And because of these continued statements and because they continue to acknowledge uh, natural immunity, I think hesitation in believing them and just vaccine hesitancy in general is going to be way up. I mean, you look at France. France is talking about their health passports. They said you need to show either proof of immunity or proof of prior infection. So, Why is it that every other country, and Israel just put out data showing their reinfections 
were significantly higher in those vaccinated than it was in those with natural immunity. So until the U.S.'s leaders like Dr. Fauci come forth and acknowledge certain known truths across the world, like COVID-19 is not a severe risk to children and natural immunity is protective, until they can acknowledge that, people are not going to believe them and not listen to them. Yep. And, and therein lies a lot of the problem. But we appreciate that we have experts and medical doctors like you and the other Fox doctors that we have on routinely because we want to get this right. We don't want to be alarmist. And Dr. Nicole Sapphire helps us on that project basically on a weekly basis and has for months, and we appreciate it. Medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor. Her book, her latest book, that is, Panic Attack. Doctor, always appreciate it. Let's talk soon. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for tuning in. So at the end of that interview with Dr. Sapphire, we were talking about credibility and people who dent or diminish or eviscerate their credibility on matters related to COVID and how you are less likely or totally unlikely to trust them moving forward. I would say exhibit A, that phenomenon, is New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who had the gall to say this today, cut 32. We cannot now go back to where we were. And I am telling you, as I sit here, I have told you the facts on COVID from day one, whether they were easy, whether they were hard. I told you the truth. No. While a lot of people were talking politics and a lot of people were talking theory And a lot of people were trying to deny because they didn't want to deliver bad news. I told you the truth. What a liar. He did not tell the truth. He lied. He covered things up. He covered things up to get a $5 million book deal to brag about how great he was while obfuscating deliberately the hard truths that prove that he didn't do a good job. What a liar. The federal government, the DOJ, the Biden DOJ, has dropped their investigation into the nursing home scandal. Other investigations remain alive. Just a disgrace and demoralizing. Janice Dean will be here tomorrow to react. I told you the truth. Give me a break, Governor. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A brand new hour and a brand new week here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our website here is simple. It's easy to remember, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. Let's bring you a Fox News alert. 
Up in New York, the markets have closed, and the Dow ends the day in the green again, up 82 points, closing at 35,144. With us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, good to have you back. Good to be back on the show, Guy. Before we get into electoral politics, let's talk policy and active politics on Capitol Hill. An interesting sort of he said, he said fight right now playing out in the U.S. Senate where Democrats are accusing Republicans of backtracking on their bipartisan infrastructure framework that they've been negotiating. They're in particular blaming Mitt Romney, saying that he has flip-flopped on one of the provisions and the dollar amount that they'd agreed to. Romney's staff says, no, that's not true. We've been consistent. You guys have started asking for more money, and they've actually cited a White House document that seems to back Romney up on this. Without getting into sort of mind-numbing details of behind-the-scenes negotiations, I do find it interesting. This is the bipartisan proposal that we talked about last week because Chuck Schumer, the Senate leader, tried to push through a cloture vote to get onto a bill that we pointed out last week didn't exist. It still doesn't exist, and it's obviously still very much open for debate when you have this finger-pointing back and forth about dollar amounts and you know within the category of water-related infrastructure. There is no bill. There's never been a bill. That was a messaging vote. What are the dynamics here, Josh, based on what you're hearing, and where does this thing go if the bipartisan group falls apart? I'm not saying that it will, but it's looking a little bit less sunny than it may have in recent days. If it falls apart, then what? So first off, when you're blaming Mitt Romney for you know not working hard enough to cut a bipartisan deal or reneging on a compromise – you know, that's not the Republican you really want to pinpoint for political gain. I mean, yep. he, he is someone who has credibility and is someone who's probably worked more than any other Senate Republican to work across the aisle to get stuff like this done. So from just a simply a political point of view, Romney has a lot of credibility and, and his folks, I, I think, have, have more, uh, you know, have, 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 have the right to be believed in, in this little spat. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of nitty-gritty that, that is sort of, as you noted, guy, a little mind-numbing to anyone who doesn't follow Congress on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, these are the types of negotiations where you always will have some kind of setback. You'll always have some kind of haggling at the last week or two as, as both sides try to get as much as they can muster out of these these discussions. You know, I, I, don't, I, I think there's a political incentive on both sides to cut some sort of deal that Ten or so Republicans working uh, as part of these negotiations uh, really uh, have been immersed in all the details. They think that it's going to be good for uh, the party, good for the country. And Democrats really, uh, you know, they, they now have an incentive to get an infrastructure deal passed to help, number one, to help Biden have a bipartisan accomplishment. And also, you know, they, they, they want to get it off the table um, because it would be hard to to pass uh, if it failed the uh, you know four plus trillion dollar spending package that that number would just be be really really troublesome uh, to get through in a, in a separate one, one size fits all bill. So yeah, but if that's uh, what they're going to try I, to do, so this is this is what I'm trying to figure out. And we had Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas on the show late last week, and I asked him about this, and I've sort of begun to more seriously consider the 
the position or the proposition that Republicans should just completely walk away from all of this, even though the infrastructure framework isn't bad. I think, uh, you know, in theory, I support it, especially, you know, you look at what it could be, relatively speaking. It doesn't raise taxes. It's real hard traditional infrastructure. It looks like it's basically paid for in pretty credible ways. It could be a lot worse. So I'm open to it. The problem is with Pelosi in the House saying we're not going to even consider that bill until the $3.5 trillion Democrat-only reconciliation package is passed. Then the Republicans are standing there basically in some ways rewarding the Democrats for an insane amount of spending saying, all right, now let's work together to spend even more. And I think that that is foolish. If, if this is what the Democrats are going to try to do, four-plus trillion more dollars, let them do it on their own and let no Republican fingerprints attach to it. However, Senator Marshall made the point, and again, I think that this is rational. He said if we do pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill and it's a good bill, A, that's you know good for the country. We can point to working together. We can get things done, bridges that need fixing, that sort of thing. Uh, B, this infrastructure bill is going to be a lot better than it would be if the Democrats did it all on their own. And C, if we do get something bipartisan done, that could give basically a, a good talking point and more than just a talking point, like a pretty profound leverage to the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Cinemas of the world saying, look, we've worked together with the Republicans on this. We got a lot of the goodies that are very popular and pull really well. We can't go along with three-plus trillion dollars of Democrat-only spending that's not really paid for or raises taxes. So we're going to really need to pare that down, and they would have a perhaps a strengthened hand to exert that influence if the bipartisan process continues to move forward as opposed to falling apart. Those were his reasons for why Republicans ought to stay on board with this. And I do see both of those arguments, Josh. I'm not fully convinced of either one. What do you think of that? And, and knowing what you know about Manchin and Cinema, is he right that they would have more power, they'd be empowered to rein in sort of, in my view, insane Democratic designs with a bipartisan agreement in hand? Yeah, I, I think it would strengthen the Republican hand to have a bipartisan deal for that ver the very reason you just outlined, Guy. I, I, I don't think spending three-plus trillion dollars is going to be very politically tenable, especially if fears of inflation, fears of an economy not living up to snuff, are going to continue into the, into the into the summer and into the fall. Uh, you know, Kirsten Cinema, she 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 has been taking great pains to distance herself from the the majority, uh, the more more liberal wing of her Democratic Party, and she won her election because there was a lot of fiscally conservative suburban voters that were uh, dissatisfied with with Donald Trump, but are very wary of of, of this type of spending, and she knows she can't take a bad vote. And, and, and win the same level of credibility with those folks. So, you know, I, I think the politics are still going to be very tough, no matter what happens with the infrastructure side of things, on passing additional spending. You still have to get Mansion, you still have to get Cinema. I think they have good political reasons not to support that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I think Republicans can at least say, hey, they've checked the box that they got a focused infrastructure package that they can take home to their voters. And they're not, they're not just obstructionists that if they, if they have a partner for dealing with, with the white house on a, on a specific piece of legislation, they'll, they'll, they'll work and, and get the job done. 
All right, let's talk about electoral politics. And, of course, it comes down to, in a lot of cases, conditions in the country and what voters are thinking, what voters are feeling. And you and I have talked on numerous occasions, Josh, about education in this cycle and also crime. And both of those are front and center right now in the greater D.C. area. Crime is getting really bad in D.C. There was a triple shooting yesterday, double homicide. There was a shooting in my neighborhood in northern Virginia uh, just a few days ago, which has a lot of people here kind of freaked out. You were tweeting earlier about polling on critical race theory among independents in northern Virginia in very blue counties. And because there's a gubernatorial election down the road here in just a few months in Virginia, I think looking at D.C. as a major city with crime problems and then Virginia with concerns potentially about crime and then also the education stuff, it's an, at least an interesting microcosm of some of the, uh, some of the winds that are going to be blowing in 2022. How are you feeling in terms of what you're not just seeing in terms of data but your sources, whether it's in the governor's race in Virginia or elsewhere, when you look at those two issue sets in particular right now, not just for 21, but of course looking ahead to 22? Well, I will say that there's a big disconnect between how both parties see these issues, uh, most, most specifically on the issue of critical race theory and education. Um, you saw, you know, Terry McAuliffe has been arguing that, that critical race theory doesn't exist. It isn't being taught in the classrooms and dismisses any, any real concern over the issue. Um, that's a big risky bet. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party right now is sort of divided between folks who actually are saying we need more critical race theory. We need more race. You know, it's really, it's really a, you know, what we're seeing in Northern Virginia is really an attempt by bureaucrats and administrators to like force indoctrination to make to make kids like young political progressive political activists. So it's a so not not education in my book. It sounds a lot more like propaganda and indoctrination, uh, very very aggressively. So, um, but but you have the Democrat, the more the more moderate Democrats are saying this stuff doesn't exist. It's overstated. It's exaggerated. And then you have a pretty vocal, more progressive fashion that say we want to do more of it. We want to, we want to be more activists. Right. It exists and it's good. The moderate view, the same political view, based on all the data that we've been seeing, both from Democratic, there was a Democratic poll that came out last week showing uh, critical race theory viewed very unfavorably, even among about a quarter of Democrats, no, no less the wide majority of independents and Republicans. And there's another poll that came out out, out of the suburbs here in Northern Virginia showing it, it's, this stuff is, is, picked, is getting a lot of attention from parents and very unfavorable in, 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 the, in the Fairfax and Loudoun County areas in Northern Virginia. I mean, the moderate position is to say, hey, we, we, we can teach about the sins of our country, the racism of our country, but we don't need to, you know, throw out the country's accomplishments out, out, out as part of that curriculum, as part of that, that pedagogy. And yet there's seemingly very few Democrats willing to say, hey, this stuff is real and it's a little too, too much, but we still need to have, like, some, you know, a balanced curriculum. They're kind of either denying it or they're saying that this is something we need to do more of. And that is just, when you look at the data, when you look at the polling, it's, it's a risky place to be because there are a lot of parents out there that aren't feeling heard. And these are not just Republicans. These are some Biden voters, yes. a whole lot of independents that aren't being even heard from, from one of the major parties on this issue, and it's, especially in that governor's race. This is, the governor matters in terms of setting education policy for the state. It's not, it's not an academic issue. And uh, the fact that you have the Democratic nominee sort of blowing it off, not really giving it the attention um, that a lot of parents want it to, to, to you know, want, want the focus on real risk, real risk for Democrats. What about crime? Yeah, that's I mean, that's I think a more pertinent. I feel like we're on the 
a year ago, we had this, the same conversation about crime that we're having now about education in that, you know, Democrats thought that crime wasn't an issue. And then oh, all of a sudden it's an issue. And now they're saying Republic, the Republicans are to blame and not very convincingly in my judgment. Um, you know, I, I think at this point, crime is ranking as a top issue for, for a whole lot of voters and, and actually Democrats first and foremost, because mm-hmm. a lot of folks who live in the cities are really worried about the direction that the, the, the crime rates are going. So, yeah, I, I think that de- Democrats are, are, are aware of this. But it, again, this is more than just saying I'm not part of the defund the police crowd. That, 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 that's the bare minimum you've got to do, I think, in, in, in a lot of these areas. You, you've got to actively support funding the police for, for boosting the morale of the police, for helping uh, address resources into these, these, these communities that have been racked by violence in recent months. So, I mean, I, I'm a little surprised that Biden, maybe I shouldn't be, but Biden was the guy who wrote the crime bill. He has a record of being tough on crime in the 90s. Um, he could, it, would, it wouldn't hurt him to bring back that old playbook and, and maybe talk to Eric Adams a little more and how he ran his campaign in New York City, because that, that's the mood of the country right now. There's a growing concern, growing fear about the rising violence in cities across the country. I just gave a few talks last week. I was traveling, and people asked me what I thought about 2022 and how I saw things shaping up. I had my own answer. But I like checking in with you because you've got a pretty good handle on this stuff. About a minute or so to go, Josh, how would you summarize the current state of play? Of course, I mean, it's a lifetime politically between now and this November, let alone next November. But you can sometimes start to see certain things building, right? Um, As head of the Republican waves, certainly in 2010, 2014 to a certain extent, certainly the Democratic wave in 2018. Are you seeing signs potentially of a wave, or is it too early to say? Yeah, I'm not seeing – I mean, look, I think the House is looking very favorable to Republicans, if only because of redistricting and, and, and frankly, because these House races are more generic. You you don't know the candidates as well as you do for Senate races. So as long as you put up credible candidates who run on on, on sort of the the main issues Republicans are talking about, including crime and education, I, I think Republicans have a very good chance to take back the House. Senate races, you know, candidates still matter. And so the macro stuff, the macro level is fairly favorable for Republicans. But when I look at the micro level and some of the battles that Republicans are having with each other in a state like Arizona, for example, Georgia, to a lesser extent, uh, not looking as promising for, for Republicans. So, you know, I, I think the House is much in much better shape for Republicans. There's a lot of internal divisions on the Senate uh, side. In, in these swing state races. And, and it, look, they can get things right. They're, they're, you know, there's a lot of time to go before we get to 2022. But the micro level indicators are a little more favorable for Democrats when it comes to the Senate landscape. Yep. And it's going to be a landscape that's challenging to begin with, but doable. But you need good candidates and a favorable wind. And those things could both both happen. Long way to go. Josh Crossauer, politics editor, National Journal, Fox News Radio, political analyst. Always appreciate it, Josh. We'll do it again. Thanks, guy. The Guy Benson Show will be right back after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. We've talked a bit about these 
Democrats from Texas who are still here in D.C. I'm actually going to Austin at the end of this week. And they'll be stuck here in D.C. by their own choosing, not doing their job, defending democracy or whatever they say. It's nonsense. I had to laugh when I saw this. The Dallas Democratic Party tweeted this over the weekend. Our Dems in D.C. said they'd appreciate care packages from home. Before 5 p.m. on Tuesday, we're collecting Dr. Pepper, salsa, candy, hairspray, travel toiletries, hand sanitizer, sewing kits, first aid, and or money to pay for shipping. Then they have a link where people can donate this stuff to these Democratic lawmakers. Some Republicans pointing out these lawmakers are getting $221 a day per diem from taxpayers. They've had private jet flights and luxury hotel rooms paid for by donors, and they're just sitting around doing Zoom meetings. By the way, Dr. Pepper and salsa and candy and hairspray and toiletries and hand sanitizer, all available in Washington, D.C. Imagine asking for this type of donation. Imagine asking your base to continue and basically help pay for and fund this ridiculous field trip stunt that's going to accomplish absolutely nothing. Is there no one back home? Are there no one in their districts who could maybe use that money more? Families trying to make ends meet? Families who've struggled with child care during the pandemic, but they have to work. They don't have the luxury of running off to Washington, D.C. to not work. Maybe they could raise some money for truly charitable causes, as opposed to this ridiculous stunt. But in a lot of ways, the left views government and politics as their charity. It's another bad look in a string of horrible looks for these people, and it's not going to work. It's The Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all along. We've spoken a little bit already today about crime, including crime in D.C., a subject that we have now been talking about on and off for weeks because it's getting worse and worse in a lot of respects. And it's not just Washington, D.C., where the police chief responding to yet more gun violence and murders said that the police force is down roughly 200 officers compared to last year this time. Right around all the riots, if you recall. And now hundreds of officers from D.C. police are no longer on the force, and you have to wonder, well, why might that be the case? Could it be that we're seeing, not just in D.C., but other cities as well, when local officials don't have the back of law enforcement, the officers get the message, back off or leave or seek employment elsewhere? Because if your job is to keep the community safe and you've got at least one hand tied behind your back by the actions, policies, and rhetoric of the elected officials in your city, what's the point? You're battling on two different fronts. It has to become very demoralizing. And it's not just the police. 
It's also prosecutors. We've talked about this as well. Left-wing prosecutors in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Philadelphia. I saw that Philadelphia is on track for a horrible year of homicides. They just renominated in the Democratic Party, so that means he'll win in the city of Philadelphia, a very, quote-unquote, progressive prosecutor. That approach is resulting in much more violent crime. But I guess some of the voters in Philly are comfortable with that. You wonder what the breaking point might be. In St. Louis, the prosecutor's office has been humiliated in recent days. I mean, this is just pitiful. This is a progressive Democratic DA office. I'll just read to you. This is from the local Fox affiliate. On Wednesday, July 14th, a St. Louis judge dropped murder charges against an accused killer. A prosecutor from St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner's office never showed up to court hearings in May, June, and again that day because she was on maternity leave. There were two other murder cases dismissed this week because of absent or unprepared St. Louis city prosecutors. Then they quote a legal expert who says he's never seen anything like it. More than 90 prosecutors have left the circuit attorney's office since Gardner took over in 2017. So she's repelling her own team, which is now so incompetent and derelict that there have been three murder cases dismissed in the span of just a few weeks because the prosecutors didn't show up or were totally unprepared. I'm sure there are some people who look at this approach to law and order and see progress. I would imagine there are many, many more people out there who look at it and see something very different, both on the police side and the prosecution side. It's like the old original law and order, right? The police who investigate crimes, the prosecutors and district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. You need both sides of this to keep crime in check. And in some places, you've got the police under siege and prosecutors on the side of criminals. Or at least saying, well, we're not going to enforce certain crimes. Or certain laws against certain crimes. We're going to kind of look the other way. Out in California, we've talked about this as well. And as you're getting the sense here, there's a pattern. We've talked about a lot of this over and over again. But we haven't really lived through it because we don't reside in these places. You just see... Videos going viral, stories flying all over the place in California where people are just looting constantly various convenience stores and chains like Walmart and CVS and Target and that sort of store where they've effectively decriminalized shoplifting and stores are closing down. When stores close down, that hurts not just the community served by the stores, also the people who work there and manage the stores and all of it because there are authorities being progressive in their minds and allowing criminals to just commit crimes with impunity. And that, of course, breeds more crime and it gets more and more serious. Anyway, all of this is a wind-up to a story that I read in USA Today out of Detroit. And I find this absolutely fascinating and revealing and it goes to this point that we've been making that you have some people in the thrall of activists and the hardcore woke crowd and they're ignoring what their actual constituents want. 
because if you live in an unsafe city, all of the preening about social and racial justice and any of that stuff seems a lot less concerning. It's a lot less of an urgent priority or problem if your own block is unsafe, your own neighborhood is unsafe. You fear for your family's safety. Right? That tends to focus the mind. So here's what USA Today reports. They've done a poll of Detroit residents. Detroit, a deep blue city in a light blue state. And it's also a heavily black city, Detroit. Quoting now, amid a jump in violent crime in this and other cities nationwide, Detroit residents report being much more worried about public safety than about police misconduct. A new USA Today Suffolk University Detroit Free Press poll finds. Listen to this. By an overwhelming 9 to 1 margin, 9 to 1, Detroit residents say they would feel safer with more cops on the street, not fewer. Let me repeat that line. This is from this poll from a credible pollster. By an overwhelming 9 to 1 margin, Detroit residents say they would feel safer with more cops on the street, not fewer. Though one-third complain that Detroit and their police use force when it isn't necessary, black men do report high rates of racial profiling. So there's that component to it. But still, it's one-third who say that the police in Detroit use too much force or force when it isn't necessary. There are reports of racial profiling. However, quoting again, those surveyed reject by three to one the slogan of some progressives to, quote, defund the police. And when we think about some progressives, and we think about the city of Detroit, it's impossible not to mention Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Democrat, Michigan, member of the squad, full-blown supporter of the defund the police movement. And she's a radical lefty, also an anti-Semitic bigot, but that's another story. So she and her buddies, AOC and Ilhan Omar and the rest of them, they're out there chanting, defund the police. We really mean it. None of this redirecting funding, which is also unpopular. That's how Joe Biden tried to split the baby. And now they're even running away from that. But Tlaib is a true believer in defund the police. And in Detroit, by a three to one margin, the voters say no. That's an unequivocal rejection of defunding the police. And when given the option, do you want more cops on the street or fewer cops? By a 9 to 1 rate, they say more cops, not fewer cops. And then you've got this congresswoman saying, no, let's defund the police. If there were a credible challenger to Rashida Tlaib in a primary, I think that person might have a good shot running on these issues alone. Back to the story. In Detroit, one out of five residents cited public safety as the biggest issue facing their city, second only to education. On a list of eight concerns, police reform ranked last at 4%. Right, So they gave Detroit residents eight issues and asked them to rank them. Like, what is your most important issue? What are you most concerned about? Education 1, followed closely by public safety, i.e. crime. 8 out of 8, dead last, 
police reform. Now, you know I'm a supporter of police reform. I'm all in favor of police accountability and transparency. Incidentally, I will note, one of the ways that I support police reform is through mandatory body cams. Not just to hold accountable bad cops who do bad things and have evidence, because that's a phenomenon that happens, but also to protect good cops. We saw this the weekend. There was a quick little video viral clip that went all over the place. It was very short that seemed or purported to show a cop planting drug evidence in a car. But thanks to body cam footage on that officer and another officer, it showed the full context of what had happened, and that wasn't true. Of course, that didn't stop it from going viral and people using it as yet another reason to demonize and attack police, but it wasn't true. And the way that we were able to see it wasn't true was through body cam footage, not just the say-so of an officer. So transparency can really work both ways. So I'm in favor of police reform, and I'm hopeful that Tim Scott's efforts on a bipartisan basis will produce something. Sounds like we're getting towards the end stages of those negotiations, potentially in Washington, D.C. But here, when we're looking at this story about Detroit, when you talk to people in Detroit, and they're given an array of options, dead last in their series of concerns, is police reform. At 4%. With a much, much higher percentage of them saying, no, public safety is what we're more worried about. A 9 to 1 margin. They want more cops, not fewer cops. Here's what I find also incredible out of this poll. Quote, the poll found a significant racial divide on the question. Black residents ranked crime at the top of their list of concerns. Number one, at 24%. And just 3% named police reform as their top concern. But white Detroit residents were more concerned about police reform than public safety. So the white people in Detroit prioritize police reform over public safety and fighting crime. Black residents in Detroit had completely the opposite priority, and it was not even close. 24% said crime and public safety, 3% police reform as their top issue. And you have to wonder how many of those white Detroiters are out there thinking, well, you know, we are standing in solidarity with our black neighbors and brethren. And the police are systemically racist, and therefore we are very concerned about police reform, more so than public safety. And then black people in Detroit are saying, no, we are much more worried about our streets being safe, our communities being safe. We want more cops. We don't want to defund the police. Police reform, okay, fine, but it's nowhere close to the same level of concern as public safety. I find the racial disparity fascinating. I would love to actually dig more and read interviews with some of these respondents, the white respondents. Why? I guarantee you some of these are sort of feel-good liberals who feel like they're doing the right thing in standing with communities of color, misjudging the actual priorities and concerns of those communities, as evidenced in this data. And if this is what is coming out of the city of Detroit... You can imagine how some of these questions play elsewhere. Not just in major cities, but in the suburbs. I wonder how many suburban white liberals would correctly anticipate these results. Or would they project onto inner city residents, black people in particular, 
an assumption, a whole series of assumptions about what they must feel and what they must be desirous of based on the last two years of rhetoric and be completely wrong. Now, on the whole issue of racial justice, if you want to call it that, there is a story that is, it seems too ridiculous to be true. It might be, but it's looking like it's real. It's a story out of Texas. We will tell you about it next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday, new broadcast week, glad you are here with us. Well, I teased this before the commercial break, and, well, let's just get into it. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales, woo! I am still debating whether or not I believe this is real. But from the Daily Wire, here we go. A racial advocacy group in Dallas issued a press release in which they told whites to pledge that their children would not apply to or attend any Ivy League schools or top 50 schools in U.S. News and World Report in the rankings, urging white parents to encourage friends, neighbors, and family members to do the same. They also announced that Dallas Justice Now, which is the name of this group, will be publicly announcing the names of those who have and have not signed the pledge. So here's what they wrote, Dallas Justice Now, DJN, addressing white allies, and apparently they sent this to registered Democrats in very wealthy neighborhoods around Dallas, Highland Park, for example. This is part of their letter. Quote, talk is not enough. Commit yourself towards taking action and making sacrifices to correct centuries of injustice. Open up spaces for black and Latinx communities by refusing to send your kids to Ivy League and U.S. News and World Report top 50 schools and encourage friends, neighbors, and family members to do the same. Imagine if those hundreds of thousands of spots at these institutions were occupied only by marginalized communities. Imagine the opportunities. We can achieve true equity within our lifetimes, but only if white folks are willing to sacrifice their privileges. This is what the press release continues. So this is what they ask the white people to sign in the pledge. Quote, as a white person with privilege, both for my whiteness and my neighborhood, I recognize the need to make sacrifices for the purpose of correcting hundreds of years of murder, slavery, discrimination, and lack of educational and economic opportunities perpetrated upon people of color. I understand that access to top schools is a key component in economic and social advancement. Therefore, I commit that my children will not apply to or attend any Ivy League school or U.S. News and World Report Top 50 school so that positions at that school is available for people of color to help correct historical wrongs. If I do not have children under 18, then I will commit to encouraging my white privileged friends, neighbors, and family members with children to sign the pledge and hold them accountable until they do so. This is hilarious, first of all. I mean, if you want to send suburban or wealthy parents running and screaming, sprinting back to the Republican Party, having drifted left in recent years, this would be a way to do it. 
start demanding these equity things and not just little signs in their yards about what they believe in their home, but actually demanding that their kids not apply to top universities, you are going to infuriate and alienate people. And they won't go along with it. Of course, they're not going to sign any such pledge. And they might even sort of nod along at the premise because that's what people are programmed to do. But this is, I mean, it is so ridiculous. I really suspect that this has to be some sort of satire or a prank from conservatives. But producer Christine did some digging. Looks like it's legit. The person who runs it has given interviews. But sometimes that line is blurred between reality these days and what one might assume is satire. I hope lefty organizations try this all over the country. Go into every suburban neighborhood and try this, please. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three every weekday. We are 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and then accessible around the clock on demand for free on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. Lots of options there. And this hour, the happy hour, is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is just terrific. If you haven't tried it, please do. In fact, I just heard from a listener yesterday, tried it for the first time, and they're now a big fan. It happens a lot, doesn't it? TheLongDrink.com is their website, TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. You can order online. Always drink responsibly, and it's 21-plus only, please. With that, let's get to our guest, Camille Foster, co-host of the Fifth Column podcast and partner at FreeThink. Camille, it is great to have you here. How are you? Guy, I am doing great, man. Great to talk to you. Likewise. And I have been following your work on Twitter and writing and commentary on issues surrounding race and critical race theory with great interest recently. And I know that you've been heavily involved in some of these battles. And I think what I'd love to do is start here, because we talk about these issues a lot. In fact, we got into some of it a little bit in the last hour as well. There seems to be a disagreement about how to even define critical race theory, and it feels like a lot of people on the left who may or may not recognize that the politics of this issue are pretty toxic for the left, they are trying to bog things down into a debate over technical definitions and the origins of critical race theory and saying conservatives are defining it too broadly, and they're lying about what it is, and they actually don't even want slavery taught in schools. There's so much conflation going on, whereas mm-hmm. I kind of feel like a lot of conservatives who are talking about this, and not just conservatives, moderates, even left-of-center people who are uncomfortable with what they're seeing, they know that it's not just, hey, we want slavery and Jim Crow taught in schools. That's not what's going on here. Critical race theory is an umbrella term that's been used to sort of capture a bunch of subsect issues and buzzwords, whatever you want to call them, intersectionality, race essentialism, it all goes into sort of this pot 
if you will, of critical race theory. If you can just maybe start off here by defining how you think about these terms and what terms apply when we're having these broader policy discussions. Yeah, well, I think you did a really good job of setting a lot of that up. I mean, to to begin, let's just establish that the context we find ourselves in is we are in month 14 or 15 of what is now being called, um, I think, rather politely, like the racial reckoning in America. There is like general reordering of priorities around things related to issues of race. Words are being and concepts that we're all familiar with are being radically redefined and a lot of battle lines are being drawn around sometimes old issues and in many instances, new issues. And critical race theory is something that it's hard, as you, as you described, it's really hard to explain exactly what it is because it means so many different things to different people. But it is definitely the sharp edge of America's culture war and the, the battle over r- the racial reckoning. And I think critical race theory has a very precise, well-established meaning among a community of academics, but that's a small community. Um, and generally those people are on the left. It's this legal tradition um, about you know, structural disadvantage and sense, notions of power. But in the context of this broader debate around things like education and K through 12 and you know, criminal justice reform and all this other stuff, there is no such precise definition. Um, As you mentioned, conservatives are generally talking about kind of this dangerous brew, as they see it, of like toxic ideas that, you know, demonize whiteness, that promote race essentialism, um, that include particular views on kind of the history of America and even the notion of America as you know, not not necessarily a good and virtuous place, but a place that is built on uh, a history of injustice that currently has systems that perpetuate injustice. And the only thing that we can possibly do, according to kind of the most passionate um, advocates for critical race theory, so to speak, again, we're using it in that broader sense, is like tear the system down and start over again. Right. And plenty of conservatives are and indoctrinate kids. concerned about that. Yeah, right. They and, want to and indoctrinate, indoctrinate kids, kids at the youngest age to sort of right. see the country the way that they see the country. And most of America doesn't see it that way and find it very toxic, which is why I think we get so much of this. And we use this term probably too often, but I feel like it's mm-hmm. gaslighting where the critical race theory, again, broadly defined, the advocates uh-huh. – vacillate. I'm not the only person who's noticed this, but they fluctuate, mm-hmm. vacillate between, oh, it doesn't really exist. It's this very discreet concept only taught in law schools. It's not being taught in schools. You're all out of your minds. But also then saying, no, no, all of this stuff is extremely important and needs to be taught to children. And you're wrong. And if you disagree, then you are racist or certainly not anti-racist. And they kind of make each argument as it is convenient for them to do so. But they are mm-hmm. mutually exclusive. And that's what I feel like okay. a lot of people look at, and they feel like their head's spinning a little bit. Yeah, well, there's a core group of people that are pushing rather dangerous ideas, I think, and that are interested in indoctrination broadly. And there are obviously really egregious examples of the worst manifestations of this stuff where you'll find like kindergarten kids who are being exposed to really like ugly ideas um, where they're being asked to to sort of talk about their whiteness and to, to confess their crimes with respect to their privilege and their inherent racism. Now that that's bad, but those are also extreme examples 
of something. And I think it's really important to acknowledge the degree to which what happens in a culture war is always the opposing sides are kind of talking past one another. They're not engaging with, you know, the honest, sincere perspective of the, the kind of moderate view on either side. They're generally engaging with the most hysterical, overwrought view on either side. And people on the left, I think, especially kind of the normies on the left who aren't terribly political, quite frankly, they don't have, in many instances, experiences with the worst forms of critical race theory in their classrooms. Like what's happening in their classrooms is what's happening all over our society, this kind of reordering of priorities around racial things. And a lot of well-intentioned people who just want to do the right thing, who are kind of newly alive to this universe of concerns about racial justice and stuff, are just trying to get it right, so to speak. And they are genuinely, I think, in many instances, flummoxed by the outrage that they're seeing on the right. Like, we aren't having productive conversations about these issues. And I think that there is a general hysteria in the country right now, a hysteria that perhaps began on the left when people were saying, beginning about 13, 14 months ago, things like, oh, my God, there's a genocide on black people. The police are trying to, it's open season on black men. That is obviously absurd and hysterical. But in much the same way, I think there is a, a prevailing sense amongst many conservatives, and, and it's being advanced by some conservative activists, that there is this broad and, and focused campaign on the left to indoctrinate all of our kids and to, to push the most ugly forms of critical race theory into every classroom in America and to, to have you know, this right. new and- order of racial equity. And I think that is, that is similarly hysterical. And there are genuinely bad ideas out there, and there are genuinely bad actors, like people like Ibram Kendi, who are pushing really ugly ideas. But I think we're going to have a hard time actually confronting those ideas if we can't be honest about, one, the degree to which this is actually a concern, and two, the degree to which, like, and this is very, really good news, Guy, I want to be sure that I get this right, most Americans hate race essentialism on the left and the right. Most Americans believe in the kind of fundamental ideas that we borrowed from or that we inherited from Dr. Martin Luther King, the notion that people ought to be judged by the content of their character and that race isn't the most important thing about who we are. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. No, and I think that's true, Camille. I think that's true, and I think that's a cause for hope. And that's why when you see in polls when some of the race fixation talking points polled it just gets you know they get blown out of the water people yeah can't stand them however i want to get your reaction to a few things including a new gallup poll that just came out last week relations mm-hmm. between black and white americans are now at least perceived to be at a multi-decade low and right. the question that they asked is what would you say about relations between white and black people. Are they very good, somewhat good, somewhat bad, or very bad? And for many years, so 2000 Mm -hmm. to 2013 or so, it was roughly 70% good, 30% bad, consistent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then 2013 until now, there's been a lot of turbulence. And in 2021, it is now flipped. 57% of Americans say that black-white relations are at least somewhat or very bad. Only 42% say good. And I, I can't help but wonder, are the people who are very deliberate in their goal of dividing us, are they succeeding? Or is this an example of Americans being blind for many years, and now all of a sudden they're awake or woke, and they're seeing things how they really are. I, I 
don't want to believe that that's fundamentally true, even if it's, it's good that people are maybe becoming more self-aware in certain ways and empathetic, that's fine. But to me, it's very disturbing in 2021 to see by a 15-point margin people saying white-black relations are bad. And, and there are people who have worked tirelessly, in my view, to achieve this tragic number. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say that it's definitely not the case that Americans are waking up to the truth that, and, and by truth, I'm using air quotes here, like, they're not waking up to some ridiculous notion that America has become this much worse place or is a much worse place with respect to race than, than we ever thought. I mean, if you actually look at the data for things like, say, police-involved shootings, for example, like the number of police-involved shootings of any American has been falling precipitously for decades now. And that is true for whites and for blacks. The, when we talk about criminal justice reform, the number of blacks relative to whites that are incarcerated for everything from like, violent crime to, to drugs, like, those numbers are, the disparities there have been shrinking for decades now. Um, things have been improving. Black, and yet black the Americans perceptions, have seen improvements as well. The yeah. perceptions have gone the other direction. Right. The perceptions have gone in the other direction. And I think that has a lot to do with, and I suspect what the poll, what people who are responding to this poll are responding to are narratives that we're seeing in the, in the elite media, broadly speaking, um, that we're he- narratives that we're hearing pushed in many instances by progressive policymakers um, and by activists around these issues who are reframing, reframing traditional debates um, and giving them to us in the sort of starkest darkest, sharpest, most kind of dire, depressing forms imaginable. And in many cases, I think dishonestly and disingenuously so, they're decoupling, you know, uh, an existing disparity that we might observe today from the actual historical reality that I described a moment ago. And they're also painting with a really broad brush, like the experience of every white person in America insisting that if you're white, you're privileged in this country, when we know that isn't true. And I think the important things that we can do right now or speak to the concerns that we all have for people who have disadvantages in this country. I am as concerned about kids in Appalachia in public schools that don't work for them, who aren't getting educated, who are barely reading at the right grade level, as I am for Baltimore kids who face precisely the same circumstances. And the only differences between those kids um, is something that's rather uh, superficial, right? It's the way that they look. But beyond that, they need the same things. And I think Americans would be far better served by not focusing on, you know, the race of the people who find themselves in disadvantaged circumstances or even the percentages of sort of black old versus white people that find themselves in a position of disadvantage. But the fact that there are lots of Americans who are struggling. And oh, I agree. But there's I better. totally agree with that, Camille. It's just there's a whole cottage industry, basically, uh, devoted to making sure that it does boil down to race and telling people from a very early age that it is about their skin color, uh, which is mm-hmm. really quite backwards. Last it's thing I want to get your reaction to, we don't have a lot of time left. AOC, Congresswoman from New York City, was on CNN talking about critical mm-hmm. race theory in these debates, and she said, among other things, quote, why don't Republicans want their kids to know the tradition of anti-racism in the United States? Why don't Republicans want us to learn how not to be racist? That's how she's framing this. What's your response to that? I, I think my response is that there are actually a lot of Americans who imagine that that is how Republicans feel. 
rightly or wrongly, and I know that it's wrong. I don't know any conservatives who don't want to talk about slavery in schools. In fact, in my experience, when conservatives think about the history of America and the fact that slavery existed here, what they are proud of is the fact that America is a country that fought a civil war and brought that horrible institution to an end. What they're proud of is the accomplishments of the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement. They want to talk about those things. But I think the challenge for conservatives is to commit themselves not to trying to ban an amorphous concept like critical race theory so that it doesn't find its way into schools or to ban the 1619 Project. Those things are part of our culture. They exist. Um, if we're going to try and, you know, fix these kind of disputes over curriculum that are happening all over the country, the way to do that is by proposing better curriculum. You combat bad ideas by talking about them and addressing them. You can't abolish them out of existence. You can't keep it out of the classroom. Absolutely, classrooms are not places for indoctrination, but classrooms are for students at the appropriate ages and the appropriate time. Well, I think that's a key point. I think appropriate age and... Having an academic debate among college students is different than telling second graders that they're all about their race. Exactly. So this is a conversation, Camille, that we're going to have to continue because it's important. You're very thoughtful on this stuff. We appreciate what you're doing out there. It's Camille Foster, co-host of the popular Fifth Column podcast. He's a partner at Freethink. Camille, appreciate it. Let's do it again. Absolutely, Guy. Take it easy, buddy. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show happy hour, interesting data from several polling sources, including Gallup, about friendship in the United States. With people self-reporting now across the country, significantly lower levels of friendship fewer close friends, contracting social circles. And some of that might just be because of COVID, where people have limited options and limited opportunities to actually see and maintain friendships. That's a reality. I find this interesting. More than three decades ago, this is from Gallup, 75% of Americans said they had a best friend. That number in this year's poll was just 59%, so just over half of Americans saying, yes, I have a best friend. I wonder what explains that. Then there's this from Yahoo News. Politics may be a key reason friendships are declining. Of those surveyed, 20% of Democrats and 10% of Republicans said they ended a friendship over a political disagreement. Of those who said they ended a friendship over politics, almost a quarter said former President Donald Trump was the reason. And we have discussed this on the show. We did a whole call topic on it. It's a thing. And the data here, this is from the Survey Center on American Life, shows that Republicans actually have more friends across the political divide than Democrats. More than half of Republicans say they have at least a close Democratic friend. Among Democrats, that number is less than one-third. So there's a commentary perhaps to be made there on open-mindedness and tolerance. And then you get the flip side of it of people saying, well, I don't want to be friends with the intolerant, even if they're the intolerant one. And round and round it goes. Here's just a public service announcement. It's wonderful to have friends who disagree on issues. And we should not discriminate based on politics. What a sad way to live one's life. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues as soon as we return. The Guy Benson Show. 
We're back. It's the happy hour. Glad to have you along every day. Earlier on the program, in our first hour, we talked with Dr. Nicole Sapphire, one of our colleagues at Fox News, a board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox medical correspondent, also a best-selling author. So much to get to on COVID, masking, vaccines, kids in schools. Here's part of our wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Nicole Sapphire. (laughs) Happy Monday. Well, it kind of feels like Groundhog Day, actually to some extent, with COVID, because a lot of us were feeling much more optimistic. The message was, go get vaccinated. This is your ticket back to normalcy. And now we just played in the previous segment over the weekend, Dr. Fauci confirming that there are active considerations underway to reimposing mask recommendations, mask mandates, even for vaccinated people. And look, I've had this conversation with people who will say, well, even if you are vaccinated, you could have a breakthrough case, and even though it won't hurt you too badly, it might you know, transmit the virus to someone who isn't vaccinated, so we kind of have to be careful about that. And I'm open, at least in theory, to talking about some of this stuff, but I just feel like you're pulling the rug out from a lot of people, where you tell them week after week, month after month, the vaccines are safe, they work, you can get back to normal, and then seizing on you know this Delta variant surge, people see the backtracking and doubts creep into their minds about all of it. And I just I personally view it as counterproductive, at least when it comes to PR. I wonder what you think of that, and then also just the medical side of it as well. So, guy, let's think of or the real Groundhog Day. Let's talk July 2020, where actually we were seeing about you know a lot of places like the Northeast were finally starting to emerge from lockdowns, and we had low numbers throughout the country. We had about 70,000 new cases. We are actually at about 70,000 new cases right now. But here's the thing: when you actually want, you know, the devil's in the details. Back in July 2020, we were having about 1,200 Americans die every single day from COVID-19. Fast forward to now, we are hovering at about 200 to 250. While we don't want anybody to be dying from COVID-19, that number is significantly better than it was last summer. And the reason being is because we are having less severe disease, we have better treatments, and over 90% of the most vulnerable, those 65 and older, have been vaccinated. And that's why we're not seeing the same rise in hospitalizations and vaccines. We have a big over-testing problem, Guy. I can tell you, Dr. Fauci, ET all, the CDC, they need to actually sit and do a think take about where, what are, what's our goal right now. We are not going to get to zero cases of COVID-19. We need to be looking at, first of all, how we're testing people, because we are continuing to just test asymptomatic people, which, which may be having clinically insignificant cases. They Not only is it not going to make them sick, but they're not going to transmit it to anybody else. So what do these new cases mean other than absolutely nothing? So if we're only basing these Wait, future so explain policies that. on... If you can just explain that a little further, because you're saying, okay, and this is part of yeah, my so- frustration as well, because... It seems like there's been a big, and I get it, it's understandable, a big fixation on some of the breakthrough cases. Oh, this person has a breakthrough case. This person's vaccinated, and yet they got a mild case of COVID anyway. And I don't think that that's a helpful discussion to have from a media standpoint, because it is, again, sending a very misleading message to a lot of people. And if you're counting as a positive COVID case, someone who's 
you know, has maybe a slight sniffle or nothing at all, just feels completely normal, but through the course of whatever process they're going through for work or whatever, they test positive, even though they have no symptoms whatsoever, that counts as a case. And you're saying at this stage of the pandemic, that's not a useful metric. Is that right? Absolutely. So here's the thing. Let me break this down. If you've ever heard of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, it can be a flesh-eating bacteria. It can be very deadly if it gets in, you know, compromised in certain wounds. Uh, but here's the thing. You start swabbing people's nose, especially a lot of healthcare workers in the hospital. A lot of them actually have MRSA, but it's not causing any problems. It's just there. When it comes to SARS-CoV-2, the virus causing COVID-19, what's happening is you're actually having people being swabbed. Those PCR tests, what they do is if they detect any viral particle, it amplifies that by the millions. So you may have non-virus particles stuffed in someone's nose who has been vaccinated. Yes, maybe they have been around someone with SARS-CoV-2. Maybe they've been exposed. But because they're vaccinated or because they're immune from prior infection, that, that virus is actually not infiltrating into their system. They're not actually infected by it. They just have the presence of the virus or virus particles in their nose. But that's being counted as a new case. That's not helpful moving forward. What we care about are clinically significant cases. And what that means are people who are presenting with symptoms, requiring hospitalization, and, of course, death. We have to stop reporting cases when they come as asymptomatic people who have been vaccinated or asymptomatic people who have antibodies from prior infection. My full interview with Dr. Nicole Sapphire available online at GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you download your free podcast. The whole show is available on demand for free each and every day. When we come back, the home stretch. I have returned home finally. Last night was my first night in my own bed in 12 nights. But I checked that 48th state off my list, Idaho. It was a lot of fun. We'll talk about that. Plus, more issues for producer Christine at her daughter's summer camp. The masks are back. We'll get to that straight ahead. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on the Monday edition here on the Guy Benson Show. Got back late last night. It was definitely a journey to get back to D.C. from Idaho. I was in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, doing an event for the Washington Policy Center. They had a retreat across the border. My first time ever in Idaho. We talked about this last week. 48 states now and counting for yours truly. And it was gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. There was some smoke from some fires, but it wasn't too bad. The weather was nice. The lake is huge and beautiful. Cool resort. In fact, when I went to the pool on Saturday, I had some downtime earlier in the day before my presentation, so I decided to go and do something. So I asked at the front desk, hey, do you guys have a pool? I had a book. I figured I'd do some reading. They said, oh, yeah, it's uh, over at our other property across the lake. You can take the shuttle or you can take the boat. And I thought to myself, well, I have to take the boat. How do I not take the water taxi to the pool? That sounds pretty awesome. They also had a golf course at this resort where one of the holes was on an island, a man-made island in the middle of the lake, so just off of the rest of the course. 
and I guess they're pretty famous for it. You could see it from the pool. They had an infinity pool, and then I actually went swimming in the lake itself. Anyway, fabulous time. Everyone was very friendly. I do want to shout out some Fox fans that I bumped into at the airport. There's a woman at United Airlines who helped me at the desk when I was going from Indianapolis to Idaho, where I was in a a tight squeeze, might have missed a connection, and she helped me. turned out that she was a Fox fan. Some folks at the resort were also Fox fans. So we always just appreciate you guys watching, and it's so cool and fun and rewarding to be able to travel again and go out of the New York, D.C. little corridor and meet viewers. It's just a very rewarding thing. But then the journey back was an all-day experience because you had to take a car from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, to Spokane, Washington, then the flight from Spokane to Denver, layover in Denver, and then on to D.C., and you lose time zones the whole way, right? So you lose a time zone going to Denver, then you lose two time zones coming to D.C., and then with a slight weather-related delay, all of a sudden you land and it's midnight. But it is great to be home. Producer Christine, do you have any burning questions, curious Christine style, about the Idaho trip, or shall we move on to the travails at your daughter's summer camp in New Jersey? Oh, no, I have questions. We'll, we'll hold that masking story for a second. Now, you said you went into the lake. I can imagine that water temperature not being the warmest. Was it comfortable, or did you just do it because you felt like you were there, so you had to jump in the lake? I would say it was cold but comfortable because I had been in the Atlantic Ocean over July 4th up in Cape Cod. That was much colder. At least it felt much colder. Like this lake, I mean, it was not exactly super warm, but I didn't dip my toe in and say, oh, gosh, I can't do it. And also, if it's even a little bit cold, the best way to do it is to just jump in rather than slowly extending the pain as you walk deeper and deeper and you're sort of on pins and needles, and then it's getting up above your knee, and then it's coming to your trunks. At some point, you just have to close your eyes, dive in, get your head wet, and then your body adapts, and it's comfortable. Because it was a hot day, very sunny, and so I liked it. I just couldn't stay in the water long, not because it was too cold, but because I only had a little bit of relatively weak sunscreen, and I did not want to burn, because I can burn relatively easy because I'm very pasty. Now, this area, you know this is like a housing boom. Like, the market is crazy over there right now. I know of so many people, not firsthand, but a lot of things that I've read, a lot of celebrities, a lot of my housewives have been buying property there and building homes. Is this something that we can think about for, you know, a future vacation house? Well, and do you mean like we as in the two of us? Yeah. G- yeah, going in on a vacation yeah, sure. house? Yeah. I'm, so well, I, I don't know if I, I mean, I, I didn't say I would go in on it. Well, okay. Oh, you yeah, want sure, me. We'll think about you it. want me to get a house <laughs> that you have access to. I see. Correct. Um, correct. It, look, it's very beautiful, and you're right. There's a ton of people moving to Idaho and to Montana, they were telling me. And some of them are worried because they're people coming from California. They're saying we want them to sign a pledge that they're not going to vote the way that California votes. But, yeah, it's these are attractive places in terms of a business climate and quality of life and all this other stuff, it's extremely affordable compared to many other places. Uh, And I really thought that the lake was beautiful. People were out on their boats and their jet skis, and I saw people parasailing and tubing. It looked really fun. It's just, as I said, a very long trip to get there, especially the return trip. 
It's just not easy. If I lived up in the Northwest, I think I'd probably spend a fair amount of time there. But that's just a long schlep. And, I mean, that's just geography, right? It's nothing against the location or the people. I would just have to be located closer to it, I think, to seriously consider that as a vacation option on any regular basis. And just because you're in Idaho, I have to ask, you know, what kind of dishes? Were the, the French fries good? Was, was the food good? What kind of potatoes did you potatoes, have? Potatoes, yeah. So I had two types of potatoes. I had fries, actually, at the, at the pool. I got a sandwich and fries, and the fries were really good. And I don't think I'm just inventing that. And it's like my brain telling me you're in Idaho, so these are good French fries. They were really good. Then I had some mashed potatoes with my dinner as well. And I had some local trout for dinner. So I tried to eat some of the stuff that they're known for. And it was really good. We had a great time. And just, again, hats off to the folks that I met out there and in my travels. And with all that said, after two weeks on the road, New York, Indiana, Idaho, I'm happy to be home. Only for a couple days because end of the week – I'll be doing the show from Texas, which I'm also pretty excited about. But just I need to enjoy being home with Adam and Roy, our dog. It's just it's nice. Just take a deep breath. Although I got in so late last night, I haven't really been able to enjoy it yet. So after the show tonight, we're going to go grocery shopping. Roy's got a little vet appointment, so we'll take him over there together. And then we might do a little watching of Ted Lasso this evening, hypothetically. So that will feel nice when we get around to it. Now let's shift, though, because I want to make sure before we run out of time. Mm. We had talked about this previously. I believe even during a home stretch, your daughter's in a summer camp. They were forcing them to wear masks indoors. She was feeling ill or even dizzy one day because it was so hot in this gymnasium. Now there's the Delta variant, and we're having this big debate again over kids and masks, and there's really... Almost no scientific data whatsoever supporting putting young kids in masks. It just doesn't make any sense. A lot of those debates are surrounding the question about mask policies going into the school year, the academic year starting in August and September. But at your daughter's summer camp, you said there's been an update in their policy and one that you are not excited about. We are fully back to being fully masked. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, indoors, outdoors. From the minute I drop Megan off at her camp to the minute I pick her up, she is in a mask. Now, they did tell me due to that, they're going to limit their time outside since it is so hot out, which was really not what I was hoping for. No. Um, and honestly, I would pull her out at any time, but she seems to be, I mean, because kids adapt and they adjust much better than we as adults do. She seems to be okay with it, and she, she made friends, so she wants to go to camp. I have to say, Guy, I mean, I know we've talked about it a lot today. We've talked about it, you know, over the past few weeks. We're going to see a lot more people masking and a lot more demands on people to mask up again. I noticed I took Megan to the library on Friday, and her and I walked in, and before I could even get to the section of where the children's books were, I had a lady come right at me, and she's like, excuse me, ma'am, you need to be wearing a mask, and so does your child. And I said, no, 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 I'm fully vaccinated, you know, no big deal. I wasn't even trying to be rude about it. I was just explaining. Maybe she didn't realize. I said, I had my card if you want to see. She's like, no, it doesn't matter. She said, so either you can leave the library or I will go find you a mask. You know, they had the disposable. She goes, and then next time, please, you need to come in here with a mask. Ah, so the, 
the librarians can now scold people for being too loud and for not wearing masks. That's fun. But I just, I have to say, it drives me nuts. It drives me absolutely nuts thinking about the so-called logic that goes into this decision made by adults to force children, young children, your daughter's eight, in summer camp to wear masks at all times, including outdoors, and their solution, because it's hot out, and the mask might make it hard and uncomfortable to breathe, their solution is, well, let's just keep them indoors more, as opposed to outdoors and playing where it is exceptionally safe. Outdoors is a very safe place to be vis-a-vis COVID for everyone of any age, especially young children. It's like exactly the opposite of what they should be doing is what they've done. And it's this grip of hysteria. And I'm not someone who's downplayed the severity of COVID. I've been all over it from the very beginning. We talked about this today at the very start of the show, as a matter of fact. But where I start to lose my mind, and I feel like it's been an ongoing process now on some of this stuff, is hearing stuff like this from you. Where they're having kids at summer camp, young children masked at all times, including outdoors, and then having them be outdoors less because it might be the type of environment where they'd want to take their masks off so they're going to keep them inside, even though they are safe as young children to begin with and safer still when they're outside, and so they're putting masks on them and keeping them inside. It's just uh, we're out of time, but I, I can't justify that at all. And if I were a parent, if I were in your position, I don't know what I would do because I know you had prepaid. You've been sort of battling back and forth with them, but it's madness. It has to stop, but I think you're right. I think it's going to ramp up. I think we're going to have a lot of these fights heading into the school year. And if passes prologue, we're going to have a lot of adults making really stupid anti-science decisions in the name of safety when, in fact, it will be not safer and it will not be pro-science. All right, we're out of here. Back here tomorrow for the Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. We'll talk to you then. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.